right, good morning, church. Good to see you all here this morning. Thanks for being here. We're going to open God's Word together, so I hope you got one of these with you. John chapter 8 is where we're going to be as we study Scripture together. We're continuing through this series, Encounters with Jesus. If, if you're a guest with us this morning, welcome. It's such a privilege and a joy to have you here. We're going to continue worshiping our God as we read this passage together here at the end of John chapter 7 and the beginning of John chapter 8. So if you would follow along, I'm going to start right there in chapter 7, verse 53, and read through chapter 8, verse 12. Then each one went to his house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he went to the temple again, and all the people were coming to him. He sat down and began to teach them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. Teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They asked this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. When they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said to them, the one without sin among you should be the first one to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and continued writing on the ground. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he was left with the woman in the center. When Jesus stood up, he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. And the next verse says this, Jesus spoke to them again, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Love those words. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You, you remember um, this little light of mine? Right, it was kind of like the 1980s version of the Baby Shark song. You know, like if you grew up in church, it was a song that everybody knew, everybody was singing, it would get stuck in your head forever, and you'd wish you'd never heard it, right? Well, it was a song that we were very familiar with, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Well, this passage is about shining in encounters with Jesus that lead from shame to shining, essentially that's what goes on with this woman. She's been caught in the act of adultery, she's been brought in publicly humiliated, trotted out in front of the society and shamed in front of everybody who's watching. And then she leaves somehow after this encounter with Jesus, shining. So we're going to think about this text and we're thinking about it clearly, I hope, together. But the warning, this first point, so there's three points, that's probably no surprise. Uh, but this first point is going to be way different than our usual flow uh, in preaching on Sundays as a church. So the first point is this, a word about your Bible. A word about your Bible. All right, so this is kind of geek out time. We're going to get technical about the text. Because you see, there's a bracketed note, it, probably in your Bible, there's something in brackets that tells you this story is missing from the earliest manuscripts of John's gospel. So 
That bracket right there gives us a rare opportunity because you only see a bracket like that twice in the entire New Testament. One's at the end of Mark's gospel in chapter 16, and one is right here. So it gives us a teaching moment. It gives us an opportunity to, to dig in, to lean in and say, why is that bracket there? What's the formation of our Bible? How did we get our Bibles? Right? So you got a question in your notes if you're taking notes, and it's this. How did we get John's gospel? Answer. John's original work was carefully copied, then circulated. So we're going to talk about the formation of the New Testament canon. We're going to do it only briefly. This isn't a lecture on textual criticism, right? So seminary people, don't salivate. This isn't your moment, right? Um, but we do need to look at this, and I think it's important for Christians of all shapes and sizes, of whatever stripe we may be, brand new in Christ or we've been walking with him for 30 years. The question about the reliability of the New Testament manuscripts is increasingly relevant for Christians to know because there is increased skepticism about Christianity in our culture. And some of that skepticism is targeted against our New Testament. The authenticity of the New Testament is called into question by a number of people. You can pick it up in a college lecture. So it just hits you in the face. You weren't prepared for this, but now you're in a college class and you're seeing that somebody's producing so-called evidence that the scriptures have been tampered with or corrupted. If you're in a conversation with a Muslim friend of yours, they believe that the scriptures have been tampered with and have been corrupted. If uh, millions of people in our culture read Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code, right? And, and it's filled with these ideas of wild conspiracies about the formation of the New Testament canon. So all of that, this is relevant for us as Christians to know, how did we get our Bible? So back to John's gospel. When John wrote this original document called the Gospel of John, uh, what did he do? What happened next? He didn't go sit it in a museum somewhere and enclose it and encase it in glass. No, uh, a bunch of people needed to get this document. This was life-changing, right? So, so they start, he couldn't run to Kinko's and make a copy for all the Christians. So what did they do? They carefully wrote this down, handwritten copy after handwritten copy after handwritten copy was produced, and then those copies were circulated to the Christian communities. That's why when you read in the New Testament epistles, and it says, give yourself, young Timothy, to the public reading of the scriptures. Why? Well, for one reason, because they don't have Bibles. This is where they're going to get it. Read the Bible out loud. Read John's gospel out loud, right? So they made handwritten copies, and they would circulate those, and then careful scribes would make more copies, make more copies. So we never lose these words from Jesus. And there are extant now out there, having been discovered, over 5,800 New Testament manuscripts. And examination of those manuscripts reveals this next point in your notes. No other ancient writing comes close to this level of careful preservation. So you just think about it. The fact that there weren't just two copies actually increases our confidence that we have God's word. Because now you can compare thousands of copies and you can find out with, with great clarity what the original documents contain. So there are obviously differences between one copy and another handwritten copy. There are minor differences, right? There, in almost all cases, actually the majority category of the differences between one handwritten copy and another handwritten copy is spelling errors, right? So it's just, you know, your scribe's up late at night and he needed coffee or he needed to go to sleep and he just looked over, he saw a word and he wrote down a word that was slightly different. He, he missed a letter in the word. So for example, I'll just give you a quick example. If you're reading ancient manuscripts 
and you've got, say, a batch of 20 ancient manuscripts located in different places around the world, but here they are in front of you, Greek manuscripts, and you're reading them, and you come to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, and what do you see? Probably in 19 of those manuscripts, you see, translation, and we were gentle among you. And then you come to this other manuscript that exists, actually exists, and it says, not we were gentle among you, but it actually says in English, and we were horses among you. Well, obviously, we have a problem there, right? It's, 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 it's easy to spot. It's easy to find out what went wrong when you look at the Greek because the Greek word for gentle is apioi, and the Greek word for horse is ipioi, right? So you've got basically one letter of difference. It's an eta and it's an iota. And if you switch that letter just ever so slightly, so if he looks over here and he sees apioi and he turns over here and he writes hippoi, then it's going to say horses when you translate it. It's just, it's an honest mistake and it's easy to correct. It's easy to find out which one is the right one so that we can now read 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 with great confidence that the original apostolic document didn't say we were horses among you. We're not uncertain about that. It said we were gentle. Apioi was the right word. So, so why a question about these 12 verses? Why do you have these words in brackets, right? This passage, friends, uh, hear this. This passage is found in the majority of manuscripts, which is why it's in your English Bible. But it's not found in the earliest manuscripts, which is why they put an asterisk next to it. They put brackets next to it. So something clearly is up because when you look at the different copies of manuscripts and people give themselves to that work, and when you look at the different manuscripts and copies, what you see is some early manuscripts will place this passage right here in John, right after John 7, 52, this story will be there. Others will place it earlier in John's gospel. Others will place it later in John's gospel. Others will place it at the end of Luke's gospel, right? So it's like, well, where does this put it? Maybe it seems like it wasn't originally here in John's gospel or else we wouldn't have this variation, right? So Mark Dever, who's a friend and who is a church historian in his own right, sums it up this way. It's like they, the early Christians, knew this was a true story about Jesus and they wanted to make sure it was included in the record of him. And as many point out, it sounds so much like Jesus. He goes to unpack that. This is not fanciful material. Like if you read the, um, the, the fake gospels, the gospel of Peter, for example, you see a story where Jesus is with his kid friends and he just does a party trick. He makes sparrows out of clay and then he breathes life and the sparrows go flying off. Like That's nothing like anything we read in the New Testament where Jesus is doing party tricks for his friends in school, right? This, this passage, in contrast, sounds a lot like the rest of the Gospels. It completely resonates. It rings true. So Deborah goes on to say, furthermore, there's nothing taught here that's not also taught elsewhere in Scripture. So in a sense, there's nothing at stake. The point of the passage is certainly true, that we can only become acceptable to God by being forgiven. So bottom line, if you're taking notes... The Jesus we meet in this story is the Jesus we meet everywhere else. So much more could be said about that. If you want to dig deeper, you can read a book like Can We Trust the Gospels by Peter Williams. You can read um, Reinventing Jesus by Daniel Wallace and a number of other 
uh, people, if you want to come up and talk afterwards, I'd be happy to talk about other resources you can dive into. So that said, and I told you that was going to be the weirdest point. That's very teachy. All right, that's going to be the weird point. Now let's dive into the text itself. So a word about your Bible. Second point, a warning we need. A warning we need. So verse 3, look again with me. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. Teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law of Moses, they commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? And they asked this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. So what's going on here is they've trotted this woman out to be stoned to death. But ultimately, it's a matter of, in, of trapping Jesus in his words, right? She's been caught in the act of committing adultery. There are verses in the Old Testament about what we're supposed to do with women like this woman here. So basically, it's kind of like they're backing Jesus in, into a corner and saying, you love God's word, don't you? Like you've read this, the Old Testament. You're an Old Testament guy, right? You've read Leviticus, you know what we're supposed to do. Our next move is very clear. She's been busted. Here she is. So Jesus, do you want to be a doer of the word or just a hearer of the word? And you can see Jesus is put in that position, right? Again, even among those who, who want to say that this doesn't belong in John's gospel, everybody says there's no reason to doubt that this event actually took place. The early church knew this story. They wanted this story not to be lost. They wanted it to be included. And remember, it fits with other occasions where Jesus was, was caught in a trap from the Pharisees, right? Religious leaders are asking questions that reveal their spiritual pride and that are shaming others, right? They don't care about this woman. They don't care about her humiliation, and it's not even about the courage of their convictions because they're so confident in God's word. They're interested in trapping Jesus, not upholding scripture. They're interested in trapping Jesus, not upholding scripture. Again, you see that in verse 6. They asked this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. Accuse him of what? And, and that's where you can see that there's actually a trap. They'll accuse him either way. If Jesus says, yeah, you're right. Leviticus does say that. Where are the stones? And, and then they act to stone her. Well, what are they going to say? They're going to go to Rome and they're going to say, you got yourself an insurgent here. We, we can't conduct our own trials and executions right here in the Roman Empire. What's this guy think he's doing? And he's got a very influential following. You should watch this guy. I don't think he's a friend of Rome. They would say that later on. He is no friend of Caesar. Right, so that would be a trap. If Jesus stones her on the authority of Leviticus, then they're going to say he's an insurgent. If Jesus says, no, let's not stone her, they're going to turn to the Jews. Not the Romans, but they're going to turn to the Jews. And they're going to say, look, Jesus is more concerned about Roman laws than he is about God's law. And they're basically hanging a sign over his neck that says, government man. Who wants to follow a man who's into or in cahoots with the Roman government? It's, it's a trap. It's not about justice. If it were about justice, one wonders, where's the guy? Right? They were caught in the act. This is a small town community. If they were caught in the act, where, pray tell, is the other party? <laughs> if this is about justice and doing God's word, then where's the guy? Right? Here's the passage from, from Moses. It says both of them are supposed to die. 
Leviticus 20, verse 10, if a man commits adultery with a married woman, if he commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. So in one sense, Jesus could say, yeah, produce, once all the parties arrive, we'll seat you, right? Once all the parties arrive, we'll start throwing the rocks, but we've only got one of them here. I thought you caught them in the act. Where's the, where's the guy? Why are we only stoning her? If you read the Gospels, Jesus isn't cool with selective outrage. If you read the Gospels, selective outrage is the Pharisees' fastball. It's it's one of their major classic Pharisee moves. But here's the thing I want us to think about in a reflective way, personal ways. What we can do, if we're not careful, uh, is we can read through the Gospels and we can say, look at the Pharisees. Look, there they go again. The Pharisees are the villains, and every passage that they show up in, they're, they're the villains. And we can read those texts where the Pharisees are doing what Pharisees do, and, and we see them doing that, and we think to ourselves, man, I'm so glad I'm not like those Pharisees, which is what? The most Pharisee thing ever. It's, the most, it's an actual Pharisee quote to say, I'm so glad I'm not like those people. Even if those people happen to be Pharisees, it's Pharisaical for us to say it, right? And to feel that way. But that's, that's the reality. The, the Pharisees show up in the Gospels, don't miss this, to show us ourselves. The Pharisees show up in the Gospels to show us ourselves. How often do we read a story in the Bible and we identify with the protagonist, don't we? <laughs> right, so it's David and Goliath. I'm not Saul locked away in the tent somewhere, scared. I'm not David's brothers. I'm not Goliath. I'm David. Right, or you got Daniel. I'm Daniel. Right, so I always get to play the part of the protagonist. Well, that, maybe that's not an honest reading of Scripture. Maybe there should be a little bit more self-doubt in the way that we read scripture. Maybe when we read this text, we should say, who am I most like? Who am I in John chapter 8? And perhaps the question that comes ringing back into our ears and our hearts is, I'm either the woman or I'm the Pharisees. Or I can multitask and actually be both of them. (laughs) But I'm least like Jesus. So often, isn't that the way we should read the scriptures, so that Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the protagonist. He's the one who saves the day. This isn't a mirror shining light into my greatness, right? Nothing humbles our pride like the gospel. Our self-righteousness like the gospel. Why? Because the gospel features uh, God's holiness and not our holiness. It features God's holiness and my sin in contrast to God's holiness. The gospel, as someone said centuries ago, finds us beggars and leaves us debtors. Neither of which leaves us any room for boasting, which is why the the apostle Paul says, if you understand what I'm saying, boasting is excluded except boasting in him. God forbid that I should boast save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. There's no room for boasting. If we understand the cross, there's no boasting. One of the most influential Christian positive thinkers of our time is the now late Robert Schuller. Robert Schuller actually wrote these words. Jesus went to the cross to magnify his own ego. He said this in another place. 
Jesus knew his worth. His success fed his self-esteem. He suffered the cross to sanctify his self-esteem. And he bore the cross to sanctify your self-esteem. Um, no, he didn't. That, that is not the atonement theology that we pick up in the New Testament. Look, we sometimes have this instinct to interpret stories of the Bible, or even, as Schuler just did, even interpret the work of the cross as if it's mainly a statement of the greatness of my worth rather than the greatness of my need. That's New Testament atonement theology. He looked beyond my fault and saw my worth? No. He looked beyond my fault and saw my need. Now we need a redeemer because we've sinned against the holy God and we're toast because he's just. So we need the cross. We need a substitutionary atonement. We need him to bear the penalty we deserve. Friends, nothing in this world criticizes you like the cross. Nothing in this world criticizes you and me more deeply than the cross of Jesus Christ. Isaac Watts is one of the greatest hymn writers of all time. I think the greatest hymn writer of all time. And he had an early ability to create rhyme schemes. As a matter of fact, he created rhyme schemes. He, he, he wrote a poem and gave it to his mom, and she was so impressed by it, and he was like four years old. And she said, uh, who wrote this? And he said, I wrote this. And she said, you little liar. <laughs> she didn't believe, it was too good for a four-year-old to write. And she said, go to your room. And he goes to his room, and he writes another poem. And guess what he did this time? All the first letters of the poem spelled Isaac Watts. So that she could see, oh, wow, the kid's got talent, right? He's, he actually has skills. Well, at one point, he would practice rhyming all day long, and it drove his parents crazy because he always spoke in rhymes. And his dad said, stop that, right? It's driving all of us nuts. And by that time, it was so baked in, he couldn't stop. It was just instinctive. He just didn't even do it without, he did it without even thinking. And his dad said, come on with me. Come on to your room. And he starts to bring him to his room to punish him. And young Isaac Watts says, Father, please some mercy take, and I will no more verses make. <laughs> he, just, he couldn't shake it, right? Well, thanks be to God they did not stifle that gift. Because that little boy grew up, and he wrote a song that's been sung for over 300 years. And you know what that song says? It talks about the cross, and here's what it says. It doesn't sound like Schuler at all. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died. My richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. The cross, he knew it, is not an announcement of my self-worth. I see Jesus on the cross and I hate my pride. I hate it. When, I, when we look at the cross, when I look at the cross of Christ, the worst sin is my sin. It's not somebody else's sin. It's my sin. If you want to see how deeply someone understands the cross, listen for the sins that burden them the most, and they'll be their own sins. That's what you'll hear. That's what you'll pick up wafting out of their life. A word about the Bible, a warning we need, and the wonder 
of God's grace. The wonder of God's grace. I'm, um, I'm reading a book right now. I just started it a couple of days ago. Um, and it's called The Good Soldier. And it was written, a novel written in 1915. The title is purely ironic. Matter of fact, he didn't want this to even be the title. He wanted it to be the saddest story ever told or something like that. And the publisher said, nobody wants to buy that, so name it something else. So he said, the good soldier. And he, he meant it very ironically because the good soldier isn't very good at all. And, and actually, as you read the opening scene of the story, it seems like everybody's got it together. And you read a little further in the book and you find out it's all fake it's all window dressing, right? The ones who have it all together are coming apart at the seams. The most noble man in town is actually the worst scoundrel you've ever met. And here's this woman, and she's been caught in adultery. And look, let's just stop there for a second, because Jesus doesn't condone what she did. He doesn't say, you know, it's no big deal. I'm just going to forgive it. He doesn't look the other way. He says in a moment, go and sin no more. God doesn't forgive our slip-ups. He forgives sins. <laughs> when we own up, here comes forgiveness. In the place of humility, here comes mercy because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That's what we see happening here. He's, he's forgiving her, but he's honest with her. He's honest with us. And isn't, isn't that what we want? Most deeply, don't we want somebody to tell the truth about us so it can all be made right in the deepest ways? We want to know the truth about ourselves. And God doesn't pull punches. We don't have a, a Bible that pulls punches. A worship song came out several years ago. And it was called Rain in Us. And it got my attention because it didn't sound boilerplate like a lot of, a lot of songs that can sometimes be written deadline songs I used to call them, songs that were written for a deadline because a CD project's got to come out a month from now, so let's just dry this thing out, fill it up with Christian cliches, hang a good groove on it, and we're ready to go, right? Well, th this song just didn't sound boilerplate to me because it was asking God to do things that a lot of songs don't ask God to do. It was saying, search me and purify me and discipline me and train me for a righteous life. It was crying out for help, crying out for change, crying out for power from the Holy Spirit. And I was like, man, that's fresh. I, I like that. But the song, before it gets the Christian, the singer, to cry out for God's help, it actually nests it in the story of redemption. Here's the words at the beginning of the song. You thought of us before the world began to breathe. You knew our names before we came to be. You saw the very day we'd fall away from you and how desperately we need to be redeemed. She feels that. How desperately she needs to be redeemed. I think the only character with whom we have more in common than the Pharisees is this woman how desperately we need to be redeemed, how desperately we need the stones of judgment to fall, not to be hurled at us, right? She's been caught in the act. She has no defense. She has no excuses. She's been placed in the center 
so that the rocks can fly from all sides, from all of her accusers, and her, her accusers have her right where they want her. There are laws about what happens to women like her. And what does Jesus do? It's such an amazing passage. He, he stoops down, you see those words? And started writing on the ground with his finger. Preachers have conjectured for centuries, since the time of Augustine, preachers have conjectured about what Jesus was writing in the sand. Books have been written called Scribbling in the Sand, right? Based on this idea of maybe there's something going on in the writing because it features it in both verse 6 and verse 8. We see Jesus stooping down and writing in the sand. So he stoops down, he writes in the sand, then he speaks and he says, what? Let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. And then verse 8, he stoops to write again. So after suggesting that everybody present is a sinner... Some have wondered if Jesus stoops down and writes in the sand the sins of the men with the stones. So perhaps he looks at the person who's first in line and he writes the name of his mistress. And then he looks at the second guy and he perceives his sin that this is a guy who's been cheating on his taxes and he just writes three letters, I-R-S. And as each Sin is identified each one, one by one, as the text says, one by one, they started to turn tail and get out of there. They drop their rocks and they leave the scene, right? Whatever it was, in effect, Jesus does what? He dismisses her accusers. He dismisses her accusers. The the language of verse 9 and 10 is just stunningly beautiful. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men, Only Jesus was left with the woman in the center. When Jesus stood up, he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Don't don't you love that Jesus gets her talking? Don't you love that Jesus gets her to answer the question? And he says, where did those guys go? All those guys who were going to kill you 30 seconds ago, where are they now? Where, woman, where are your accusers? Is anyone here to condemn you? He gets her to answer the question. What does she say? No, Lord, none. There are no accusers present. What what is he doing? He's making grace personal. Let me ask you, has grace become personal to you? Has God the Holy Spirit done that thing that he does? Has he done that thing that he loves to do whereby God says to you, to your soul, I want you to know that the safest place in the world for broken sinners is right here with me. Just you and me are here. Your accusers are gone. The accuser has been cast out and it's just you and me, but pause for a second, because in one sense that might not be comforting. If she knows a little bit more, that's actually not comforting because her flawed accusers are gone. Because let the one who's without sin cast the first stone. Well, guess what? The one who's without sin is standing there. He can still cast the stone. He is. We know it better than she knows it. He is the judge of all the earth. He is the one who writes the scales. He is the one who doesn't overlook sins. So what becomes obvious in this exchange 
is this. Jesus reveals his authority to forgive sin. I love what, um, what our friend and brother Ray Ortland says. He says, Jesus creates for this woman an unaccused place. I love this. He draws a circle around her, a circle of safety where guilty sinners caught in the act can get right with God again. <laughs> That's beautiful. How can God forgive sins? Because he's God. Jesus can forgive sins because he's God. But wait, I thought God was just. And for a just God to forgive sin seems like he's letting her off, letting her go scot-free. Overlooking sin is, isn't justice, it's injustice. Well, to answer that question, we actually need to know the story of the gospel, that God, from the beginning, writes this story, right? He, he knew the very day we'd fall away from him and how desperately we'd need to be redeemed. And so what does he do? He sends a redeemer, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us, and he comes into this world and he says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to what? To give his life as a ransom. For who? For her. For me. For you, for all who trust in his saving work on the cross. When Jesus told her, neither do I condemn you, we know what he was saying. He was saying, I'll take your condemnation. Give me a minute. I'll take your condemnation. You come, you believe in me, you're safe forever. You trust in me, I'll take your load one of the old hymns, O Christ, what burdens bowed thy head. Our load was laid on thee. Thou stoodest in the sinner's stead, didst bear all ill for me. A victim led, thy blood was shed. Now there's no load for me. It's a reminder of what we read in Romans 8.1, what we cherish, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That, that's why I didn't want to skip this text because the theology, John Piper says it this way, the, the theology that's embedded in this text is the theology of the whole Bible. Friend, believe this gospel today. Repent and believe this gospel today and everything between you and God is right. You see what Jesus does at the end? He frees her to live again, this time for his glory. He gives her a new start, doesn't he? Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. Does your conception of Christianity have both of those statements or only one? And which one does it have first? rather than second. Which one is a consequence of the other one? So it's not, hey, earn this and I'll not condemn you. It's not that. It's not change yourself and we'll start talking about mercy. But neither is it, I won't condemn you, now go and do what you want. I won't condemn you, now go and live the dream. The dream is what got me into this mess. Living the dream is what got me into this mess. Look, Jesus washes us clean. He makes us right with God. And then what does he say? It's time to turn the page. You're not going back there. You can't go back there. There wasn't life back there. Now you come with me. 
out of darkness into light. Look, real Christianity, friends, is Jesus saves and Jesus reigns. It's it's not one or the other. It's Jesus takes all that we've done wrong, gives us all that he's done right, then plants his spirit within us to make us new creations. So that now we are capable of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There's an ability to turn the page in the power of the Holy Spirit and be utterly, absolutely transformed new people. (laughs) I wonder if that's why they put this passage here just before Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Anybody who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Maybe to help disciples see the connection that salvation from Jesus is a whole new life in a whole new realm. It's like this woman's whole story has been changed in one afternoon. And she comes in and she's wrapped in shame and in darkness And it's like we hear her leaving at the end of this passage and she's humming, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of right. So you hear her singing as she's walking away in the passage. The glory of encountering Jesus is you come with shame and you leave shining. I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness but will have the light of life.